Welcome to this podcast, which was recorded at the Australian Farm Institute's Roundtable on valuing agriculture's natural capital in October 2019. I'm Richard Heath, Executive Director of the AFI. The Roundtable interrogated opportunities to build natural capital in the ag sector and asked what support is needed to progress the implementation of ecosystem services in an Australian landscape. The three Roundtable sessions offered different insights into these topics. We hope you find value in these recordings of the speakers' presentations. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this session is planned to deal with the issues of the enablers, those support structures and systems necessary for a functioning and successful ecosystem services market in the future. My name's Andrew Spencer. I've got the honour of being the chair of the Australian Farm Institute, and I'm also the facilitator for this session of today's roundtable. After the first session, it's pretty clear that there's a lot of questions to be answered about this issue of ecosystem services. What is our product? How do we go about producing it? Uh, who is our consumer? And how is it going to be traded? Are we equipped well enough to be able to answer these questions and more as we will need to, uh, to be able to get a new business up and running for Australia's farmers? And I hope that at the end of this session, we'll have some answers at least around that particular question. So let's get into it. Our first speaker is John Woods. In the program, hopefully in front of you, you've got a bio that you can read about John. But in brief, John's a, a grain producer from New South Wales and Queensland. He's highly involved in the rural R&D industry because he's chair of the Grains Research and Development Corporation. And recently, he's also been nominated as chair of the rural R&D corporations more broadly. So please welcome John to the podium. Thanks, Andrew. Welcome, everyone. Thank you very much for an inspiring start to the day. I thought it was a, a cracking session to set the scene. If Richard didn't say it in his introductory remarks this morning, I was certainly going to say it. It was really nice that Richard, when he introduced today, it was about keeping this real. And I think we need to be thinking about tangible outcomes, not what we could do, but what we actually can do. And I think we need to deal with the things that we know and influence the things that we can influence rather than speculate and pass it down the line and hope others are going to take action. How many farmers in the room? Hands up for a farmer. That's eh, not too bad. I thought it might be a bit higher. Richard, pull your socks up a bit. Anyway, good to see you. I'm really pleased you've all taken the time out. I'll give you a quick hit. I'm just trying to give you a little bit of context about the R&D sector, what it actually contributes to this ecosystem services piece that we talk about. I regard that as quite a bubble term, of course, so I'm going to try and keep my speech pretty real. I also want to talk about how it affects our market access and also individually what we can, what we can do ourselves as growers, because I'm a grower. If I talk to anyone around home in the last couple of weeks about ecosystem services, they just think I'm mad. There is no one that I spoke to on my home turf at Gundawindi that had any clue what this even means. So we need to try and distill that into actionable things later today. It means all things to everybody. There are certainly a lot of levers in this space, but let's concentrate on agriculture and what we can do as a community of agriculturalists to influence this process. So just think about the R&D system for a moment. These are four purpose statements. So just have a look at those. What's missing? These are all purpose statements of organisations that core business is R&D. They're not just R&D corporations, they're state agencies or federal agencies, they're also commercial sector people that regard themselves or universities who regard themselves as R&D partners. So what's the missing link? 
Well, I'm a grower. I'm not in business unless I'm profitable. So profitability is the key for me. And I can't believe that some of these organisations don't reference profitability to their stakeholders. And there's no reason why sustainability is absolutely compatible with profitability. They go hand in hand. We require and foster our natural resource to harness that, grow it for generations into the future, but we also need to do it profitably and enhance the system. So we're long term. So GRDC's purpose, if you look at it, it's all about enduring profitability. We're talking about the long-term horizon. And that's just something for people to just think about. We need profitable systems so that we can reinvest, so that we can look after the landscape and actually do the things we need to do. So there's many profit drivers. We used to talk about productivity a lot at GRDC, but there's a whole range of levers that influence profit, including some of these areas of ecosystem services. How do we then capture that? How do we harness that? These are the challenges that we need to think about. Now, I just thought that, you know, a lot of people think, well, what is R&D doing in this space? And in, in the initial drafting of the agenda on this, it was very much the questions were around, so what are you guys doing in this space as R&D? Now, there's 15 RDCs. There's a whole range of universities, state agents, federal agencies such as CSIRO playing in all this space. So we've all got a part to play. But R&D, it's our core business. This is part of our DNA of ensuring sustainability and growing profitability for our growers. So it's core business for us to be accommodating these so-called ecosystem services in our system. Now, I'm only going to pick one issue today because just GRDC, let alone RDC's sector, GRDC has 780 projects, $190 million portfolio every year. You know, it's a very diverse business. So I'm only going to pick on one specific area, and I'm going to be talking around greenhouse emissions and nitrogen in our portfolio to reflect what the R&D sector can do for both growers and the ecosystem to actually pull that together. Now, I just want you to note here, these are gross emissions. This is not with the sequestration of the plant itself. This is just the gross. So obviously the nets are a lot lower. But I do want to just point out pre- and post-farm nitrogen emissions. Massive. So pre-farm gate nitrogen in the grains industry accounts for normally over 30% of our emissions. On-farm are normally over 20%. So combined, they're often around 50-plus percent of our emissions. And you can see field peas, obviously because we don't put urea and nitrogen on, they fix nitrogen themselves, of course, because they're a legume. So it collapses down. So legumes in the system are absolutely key for the grains industry. So that's just trying to give you a sense of what's going on with nitrogens from an emissions perspective. So let's have a look at nitrogen for the farmer. So why worry about it? It is actually always top three in the expenditure line in an Australian grain grower business. It's also, as we've just spoken, the largest greenhouse source. It also has a massive impact on the marketability of our grain because obviously if you, if you grow eight or 9% protein wheat, your market is feed. If you're trying to compete against Ukraine, it's not gonna happen. So you need to be punching, you know, 11 and a half, 12, and in the northern region of, of Australia, 13 plus percent protein. So nitrogen is a big driver of our profitable system and a big driver for more productivity and yield as well. And a little startling figure that Lorraine will just love is that not all that 1.1 billion is, is in nitrogen, but overwhelmingly it is mainly nitrogen that is part of that $1 billion cost to Australian grain growers in nitrogen. This is why all of this is integrated. Profitability of systems, sustainability of system, and emissions issues, all that gets tied together. So what are we doing about it? At GRDC, we're taking an integrated approach. So we've stood up an investment with CSIRO under the ARENA program, which is a federal government program on renewable energy, and ORICA and ourselves. So this is a commercial and government process that we've done. 
Now, this is actually with CSIRO, not agriculture, but their energy division in CSIRO. This is basically using, there's some risk involved in this, and there's people in this room that will understand where we're at with this. We're, we're hoping to get renewable energy to actually provide the process through to ammonia, which will, number one, drive down the emissions that are generated when you're developing things like ammonia and urea, in fact, collapse it. So most of that 30% we're talking about, ex-farm gate, in nitrogen emissions, is mainly around the high energy cost or the input cost that it takes to make ammonia and nitrogen in the system. It is huge. So if we can invest in this and get an outcome, we can use re renewable energy, we can scale down the investment with regards to how you produce that, which means we may even also be able to regionalise that closer to the source and closer to the customer. So you're getting rid of that logistics issue as well. So there's some real opportunity here. So this is, this is going to be a long-term high-risk investment, but we're pursuing it. The next piece of the equation is we've just done a deal with Insight Tech Pivot, uh, Melbourne University with GRDC, and this is around trying to find biodegradable fertiliser coatings which will actually manage the soil condition and the plant condition so that we're decreasing our losses, decreasing our leaching, and increasing plant uptake in the, in the manner in which the plant needs to use that nutrient. Now, this is a five-year project. We've actually, between the three of us, we've collectively put $12 million into this. This is how much of a game-changer we think this could be. Very powerful if we can pull it off, and there's already elements of proof of concept. The other area is obviously increasing legumes. You saw the, the strategic importance that legumes have in the system when you're looking at emissions, but it is also a great rotation for our system. It's driving profitability because it's often higher money that we actually get for the pulses. You know, you're growing chickpeas at $800 a tonne and lentils at $500, $600 rather than wheat at $300 and you're reducing your input costs. So there's some opportunities there and we're obviously increasing that. We've taken a chickpea industry of 100,000 tonne to two years ago to 2 million tonne. So it is working. So we've got a very nice system starting to evolve and work and contribute to a rotation and meeting all these other needs. And the last one is pretty common sense. This is just on-farm optimisation. So more information, more sampling, more timely application of nitrogen so that we ensure that we're meeting the needs and not wasting. Whereas it was always, you know, if you went back 20 or 30 years, people just put 150 kilos of urea before the season on per hectare and just went with the season. Whereas now, we meet the requirements. So I just want to touch on market access. The reason why so much canola goes into the European Union is that they require a renewable energy directive policy that you need to have anything that's going to biofuels into the European Union has to meet certain sustainability criteria. Now, the Australian community and the Australian grain grower actually meets this. Now, this has all been informed by R&D. So, investing in R&D and actually ensuring that you've got best practices on farm for sustainable management and growth of canola is then linked through to what is the market opportunity and then R&D also informs the policy around that to say, hey, this is the metrics by which we're going to judge this, provide that to the European Union, get that ticked off, and then next thing, it's our largest market, but it's about 73 to 80% of our market, which is huge. Not every country meets this, no way. We are the single largest provider of canola into the European Union. Canada only put a couple hundred thousand tonne in there, and we're putting about 1.5, 1.6 million tonne into the European Union. So this is a competitive advantage. It's about market access, but it is also a slight price premium, which is great for our growers. So we need to maintain this. 
This evolves, this process evolves every two years at the European Union. They reset their metres to ensure that what is going into biofuels is appropriate. Every two years we need to refresh. So we need to keep moving. Even our farmers need to keep innovating, implementing new technology and ensuring that we're actually meeting those horizons and then we also need to tell the market that we're doing it. This is pretty much what growers need to consider when putting together their application for certification for supplying this market. It is quite complex. You're talking about fuel usage, you're talking about carbon emissions, you're talking about staffing arrangements, you're talking about riparian vegetation management, all that sort of stuff. So we do this now. This is where the industry is now. So there's real opportunity for the market access piece and us pitching our wares as, as Australia but also as individuals. So I'm just going to distill it down to an individual level. We have actually gone through a process, and I'll keep this very short, so that's where we farm. That's some very thick timber on our country, which is magnificent Brigalow Balar timber. It actually should not be cleared. It's remnant, it's beautiful. You walk 20 metres in that, you can't see who's in there. And we've just gone through the Biodiversity Conservation Trust. Our business has just locked that up in perpetuity, and we're being paid by the community to do so. So that was a dead asset to us effectively. In fact, it cost us money because we were maintaining it. However, now that's an income generator, highly valued by me, highly valued by our family and the farming system because that actually generates cash. That is a real opportunity for all of us and we're doing that now. We just signed that contract only three weeks ago. So I just want to wrap up on some challenges. Now, for obvious reasons, there's some similarities from this morning. I just want to throw it out there. We need to think about a whole system approach. There is so much fragmentation in this area. We're all tending to run our own race. We need to start thinking about the sector, either agriculture or at a minimum, you know, grains, but we should be thinking about agriculture, what we can do there. The R&D space in agriculture is quite large, but globally we're tiny. So we need to get together, and if we want to harness this, we need to probably do more collaboratively to play in this space. And there's also opportunities at the enterprise level. What can we do to the individual to actually take advantage of these opportunities. Market access and differentiation. So as I said around the canola example, I think we'll find over time these parameters, the metrics and what we're doing around ecosystem services or whatever you want to call it, managing our sustainable environment, it'll actually be about market access, not about price increasing. I think you'll find it'll just plainly be market access. You want to import to us, you need to meet these requirements. It'll be simple as that. So I think that's something that growers, we need to get our head around, that it won't be necessarily around premiums. There might be with differentiation, but there's definitely going to be market access issues. Reliable measurement models. This came out in the last, last session. There's so many different measurement models out there for even the same opportunity. Again, a, an opportunity for R&D to inform the metrics and give some validation to the process and possibly invest in these areas to do a whole of system approach or even distill it down as Lorraine mentioned into different soil types and things like that. I mean it's a very expensive process some of that but I think we need to take a more strategic whole sector approach when it comes to measurement models and not have you know CSIRO, a university and a state agency all developing metrics on you know pollinators or something. How do we identify the opportunity? So this is both as a sector of you know the grains industry or the meat industry. How do we look for the market opportunity is there market pull, market push? And if we can identify that as a sector or even as an individual, what's the opportunity? Who's advocating for that? I don't think it's the R&D sector. I think we need to do R&D to inform policy so that we can arm, such as you know, Grain Growers Limited or something, to, to pitch our wares when they're talking internationally at a trade forum. That's the type of thing that we need to be thinking about. So it's around R&D for policy. 
value capture mechanisms, depending on what you want to do, whether it's a pollinator, whether it's trying to harness carbon, whether you're uh, maintaining water resources, the value capture mechanism will be different. But I think we should be able to get some consistency around how they might be applied and the expectation by which how much you should get paid. And I think that's key. We need to make sure that we get some transparency in the value capture mechanism, otherwise we're literally going to have dog eat dog. And who pays? Well, there's commercial arrangements out there that literally pay you for the service, and that's fine. The community issue. So I'm getting paid by the community, effectively, to lock up my timber, and that's great. So I'm being rewarded, effectively. But that's versus regulation. We heard Mick talk about regulation. That is a cost to the individual, because normally that comes all the way down to the proprietor. Then there's always the individual. We often do things out of the goodness of our own heart. We, we do things on our farms because, not because it's necessarily profitable, because we actually think it's a good thing to do. So we take that cost. That's just the way of doing business, and it's our contribution to the community and our family. And just one last word of caution. Just a caution, and I don't want to be known for the guy with the pig, but, um, but I thought Andrew Spencer, who used to be APL, but I just caution about market distortion. And it got a little bit of reference this morning. We need to be careful about the policy settings and the drivers for change. So, for example, if you're a large company, you have a problem with carbon, there's a lot of organisations that are ducking out to the Western Division of New South Wales and South West Queensland around Cunnamulla and Charleville, and they're buying country which might be mulga scrub, they lock it up. And it is not managed, it is literally just locked up, it's not managed, there's no people there. There are vermin getting out of control, including feral pigs, which are regarded as a has a, a serious problem in Australia. It's also having impacts on communities. There's a lot of neighbours that don't want to be anywhere near these guys when they buy the place because all the problem just comes straight through the fence. So I'm just cautioning, anything we do as policy or, or industry, be very careful about the distortion effect that you might play because it might have a long-term effect. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this recording from the Australian Farm Institute's Roundtable. Make sure you seek out others in this series and visit farminstitute.org.au for the accompanying slides or more information about our work.